This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by Brewcraft USA. Need high quality fruit ingredients for your next apricot wheat or blackberry stout? Maybe you're looking to brew a raspberry pills or a blood orange saison. Vintner's Harvest has you covered with eight newly released varieties in their line of fruit purees. Packaged in convenient to use 49 ounce cans, each is packed full of top quality fruit. Vintner's Harvest produces the finest fruit product available to use when creating your own craft brew. Look for any of the 14 Vintner's Harvest Puree varieties wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or a homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guilt. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome to the Experimental Brewing Podcast with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the one who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. All right. And on today's episode, we're going to head to the pub to discuss global homebrewing, talk some more about Barrel of Monks and some experimental advice to our Igors. We're going to cover a hop experiment that we have coming up and a plan for a future episode that we need your help with. Uh, after that, we're going to put on our Roger Davis translation helmets. <laughs> oh, yeah. And finish our interview with Roger Davis, the head of Alameda's Faction Brewing Company. And then finally, to close up, we'll uh, hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew, where we uh, find out once again if we have any advice or uh, whether you should just brew your beer on your own. And we'll finally close out the show with our quick tip of the week. So you can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, to support us and the charities that we support. The charity that we have chosen for now, and we'll probably change this a few months down the road, is uh, Freedom Service Dogs. This is a really cool organization. They're a highly rated charitable group out of Colorado that rescues dogs from shelters and trains them into service animals for folks with disabilities, including military vets. Help us raise some money for the pooches. And I got to tell you, I can't think of a much better uh, charity to support than uh, 
something that benefits both dogs and disabled vets, huh? Yeah, I know. Well, and I'm I'm just looking around uh, here in the office as as we're talking. I have four snoring chihuahuas in my area. I don't think they could be service dogs for anybody, but uh, I'm glad that somebody's making service dogs for yeah, people. Yeah, really, man. And uh, again, uh, to me, it's just uh, a brilliant, brilliant idea. And so uh, go to the website, click on the Patreon link, and throw us whatever you can, and uh, we'll send uh, at least part of that along to Freedom Service Dogs. And And for the future, if you have ideas of other charities that you think would be great for us to support... Uh, feel free to drop us a line and let us know. We're always looking for new ideas. And as Denny said earlier, we're going to rotate charities every couple of months, uh, maybe every half year, depending upon how long it takes for us to raise money that we think is a good donation. Yeah. So uh, send us your ideas. Uh, we'll vet them. And uh, who knows, maybe the charity that you suggested will be the next one to benefit from uh, from the podcast here. So uh, about time to go get a beer. Well, I think first we need to talk some listener mail, though. Okay, well, I can wait. So uh, tell me what kind of mail we've been getting. Well, okay, so uh, just as we're recording this episode, we released the final write-up for the first experiment, the Y-East 1056 versus White Labs 001. And that was the the experiment that we had talked about on the last podcast with uh, Marshall. And boy, a lot of comments out there about the, about the experiment and people talking whether or not we did things correctly, you know, what things we could have done differently, whether or not our results are valid, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so all I can say is uh, to everyone out there who's criticizing the experiment, uh, I'm sorry, we are human beings and we're new at this part and we are doing our best to make our experiments as, as rig- rigorous as we can while still being fun. So if you have suggestions about things that we can do with our experiments to make them better, uh, feel free to let us know. Uh, we're always going to try, but like I said, we want to always make sure that these are fun. After all, nobody's winning a prize for a, a, a Nobel Beerology Prize for any of this stuff. Yeah, that's right. We're just man. having fun and trying to get the answers. Yeah, that, I, that's what I was going to say. Remember, this is about making beer at home, not curing cancer. So, uh, you know, take the results for what they are, and we hope that they're useful to you. And uh, if you don't like our results, try the experiment yourself and send us your results. Uh, what else can I say? Well, and I will say I thought it was interesting. All of the criticism that we saw was about, you know, the structure of the experiment and certain experimental procedures and the analysis of the data because scientists are pedants and homebrews are pedants and the combination of homebrew and science is doubly pedantic. But what I didn't see any uh, real criticism of was whether or not the result that we saw was completely out of left field, which was that basically 1056 and White Labs 001 appear to be interchangeable until you actually put them side by side, at which point in time you notice certain definite characteristical differences. Yep. So yep, yep. there you go. All right, to the pub. To the pub we go. We'll see you all there in just a minute. sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers so we can talk about the beer life. Uh, Drew, what are you drinking today? Uh, I'm drinking uh, Jackie Tar from, uh, it's a brown stout from McLeod's Brewing Company or Ale Company here in uh, Van Nuys, California. 
And I figured, given some of the topics we're going to talk about today, it would be a good idea to have a sessionable stout in my glass. Wow, a brown stout. Interesting. Uh, notice I'm not screaming, man. You, uh, you've gotten me uh, turned around about the color of stouts. What can I say? I'm having a bottle of 2008 North Coast Old Stock Ale. Uh, every year I buy a bottle or two of that and uh, kind of stick it in the back of the fridge and try to forget about it for a while. And uh, the other day I was putting in this year's bottles and there was the 2008. I thought, okay, it's time. And boy, this beer is amazing. I love it. Well, yeah, it, nothing like breaking out something extra special while we're talking. Well, you know, uh, what, what can I say? Uh, you're an extra special guy to talk to, so... Uh, that might be the nicest thing you've ever said about me. <laughs> yeah, it may be. So, uh, you have some info about the homebrewing scene in India? Yeah, so I think this is kind of cool. You know, you think about uh, how America started uh, homebrewing. It was a defensive thing. And mostly started by guys who had been over to Europe and gone, I like this beer, I can't get this beer at home. And, you know, they started, they started trying to brew beer at home in order to replicate those flavors that they had had. Well... Now here we are, 40 years on, and the hobby is still going strong. Uh, and while I was uh, flipping through the paper the other day, I discovered an article uh, from India about a rise in the homebrew scene over there. Now, my day job, the thing that actually pays for me to have a mortgage and a microphone and everything else, is I manage engineers. And a good number of the engineers I manage are actually from India. And so we've had a lot of conversations about beer because they think it's absolutely weird that I'm a guy who is, you know, their manager and somebody who's obsessed about beer. But this was really cool. It was in the, a, on a website called uh, thehindu.com, and it actually talks about the rise of homebrewing that is happening uh, over there in the areas, particularly around uh, Mumbai. And it was really great to see, you know, talking about flavors like Hey, cardamom ale and uh, Ruwaka hops going into into various beers and oh things about Bavarian Hefeweizen and all this and uh, turns out I mean like most lo local cultures homebrewing is an adaptation uh, or they adapt it to the equipment that they have so a lot of uh, plastic bottles are, are being used as opposed to like glass bottles that we would see here and they're really starting to get uh, to the stage where you know. Obviously inspired by the things that we're doing, but now also incorporating local flavors and local ingredients. So obviously we just talked about cardamom. Uh, they're also uh, looking at various different grains that they find, like uh, different varieties of millet uh, to, to incorporate. There's a, a variety of millet that's used to produce a traditional beverage called Chang. And so now uh, these guys are looking at how to incorporate into their homebrew. And... What, uh, one other thing I thought was really interesting was that we usually think of homebrewing and craft brewing kind of going hand in hand in this country with craft brewers providing a lot of support to the homebrewers, but really craft breweries rolling up out of the homebrewing hobby. And one of the things the article touched on was the fact that there in India, uh, there are a lot of rules about beer making. And a lot of rules about how craft breweries can operate. Like, for instance, uh, it takes a whole other special set of licenses to be able to do anything if you want to bottle your beer. <laughs> and so they're starting to have these craft breweries that are rising up, but they, they all have to start off in this very kind of slow, 
small way of draft beer and local service only before they can ever actually apply for licenses to do bottles, if I'm reading this correctly. So I thought it was interesting uh, just to see uh, this sort of thing rising up in other spots. Obviously, last year, Denny and I went to Brazil. Yeah. And I had a great time there and seeing the same thing. And what's really cool is that things like podcasts like this, other things that have been put out to the on the internet, like uh, John Palmer's first edition of How to Brew, uh, all the information that's floating around on the internet is now actually flying around the globe and really helping out. Uh, I would assume that in India, we're going to see the same thing that what we saw in Brazil last year, where a whole bunch of knowledge, they have all the, they have all the techniques that we've developed. They have all the, all the information that we know. Their problem is just getting the ingredients and the equipment. And that's going to be the place where unique things will rise up out of their culture because they're just going to have to adapt. Yeah, boy, that's that's really cool, man. Um, it'll be really, really interesting to see where that goes, especially given some of the tight controls they've got, you know. So uh, good on you, Indian brewers. Keep it up. Uh, I guess now it's a, a good time to uh, mention that uh, I talked to my son the other day. I don't know why any of you care about this, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh he is uh, not a brewer, but he is a beer lover, and uh, he listens to the podcast, and so does his girlfriend, Danielle. So right now, it's time to say, hi, Travis and Danielle. Thanks for listening. See you this summer. Okay, that's out of the way. <laughs> time to move on. Uh, I want to revisit... Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. I, I, I have to say, I've heard a lot of people complaining in the past about you know, creators having fan service in their in their projects, <laughs> but I, I I have to say that it's kind of amazing that we're now to the point where it's family service. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and if they can just get the kids to listen, too, that'll be like three more listeners. So, Okay, so uh, if you were listening last week, we talked about a great new brewery that I've discovered called uh, Barrel of Monks from Boca Raton, Florida. And I kind of like uh, tried to describe the two beers from them that I've had. And it turns out that I blew it on both of them. So uh, Phil from Barrel of Monks uh, got in touch with us to kind of set me straight. And I want to fill you guys in because these are killer beers from a great brewery. Nice bunch of guys. Uh, the first one I had, again, was called Start. S apostrophe T-A-R-T. It is uh, a beer made to taste like it has fruit in it, even though it doesn't, an, an amazing strawberry kind of ester to it. Phil informs me that there's no Brett in the beer at all. It's 100% lacto. It's uh, soured in a closed barrel before they pitch the yeast. Very interesting uh, in, uh, method there. Uh, the other one that I had that I just absolutely loved was called Quandrum. It is a rum barrel aged quad. And boy, let me tell you, the combination of the rum, the barrel, and the quad was just amazing. Uh, they also make another quad called Quadraphonic, and it spends uh, a couple months in Caribbean rum barrels. So anyway, um, if you're in uh, the Boca Raton, Florida area, stop by, check out Barrel of Monks, and uh, we hope to have the guys on uh, in the not-too-far-distant future to talk about their beers and hopefully taste some of them right here during the show. That sounds awesome. Yeah, man. Uh, I know you go to Florida a lot, and I really recommend you search these guys out the next time you're down there. I uh, know. The problem, though, is they're down in Boca. Oh, okay. 
I don't want to go anywhere near Boca. Okay. <laughs> well, Maybe this will get me to go to Boca. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I I don't know my geography well enough to know uh, exactly how that uh, stacks up to where you normally go. But I would say if you're up for it, it's it's well worth it. Well worth it. So what do you got now? All right. Well, I think uh, this is kind of cool. One of my uh, favorite uh, beer writers has returned to the fold of beer writing. Uh, a guy named uh, Lou Bryson. Yeah, and let me tell you, I. I'm really, really excited to see Lou back to beer writing. He was one of the people, when I very first started brewing 16 years ago, I would read his stuff online, and uh, he really turned me on to a lot of stuff. Um, he, uh, especially Belgian beers. I mean, I got interested in Belgian beers from Lou writing about them, and uh, even though he's uh, ringing the session bell these days, uh he just he he really knows his stuff. It's great to have him back. Yeah, and so Lou Lou is based out of uh, around the Philly area. He writes a uh, blog called Seen Through the Glass, and also is responsible as Nay just uh, sort of mentioned the Session Beer Project. Now, for the past couple of years, he's been off being uh, the executive editor of Malt Advocate, I think the magazine was, but a big whiskey magazine, doing a lot of whiskey writing. Uh, but he's just now stepped back into the world of freelance beer writing. And by that, he's also sort of resurrecting the Session Beer Project, which he founded a few years back, uh, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or so, to try and flog the idea that not everything has to be a giant beer in the craft beer world. And so now, like how IPA has a day and Stout has a day, etc., etc., Lou is pushing for April 7th of this year to become Session Beer Day. And he's also challenging uh, folks both on the professional end and on the homebrewing end, to brew something that's sessionable that isn't a session IPA. Yay! Which, yay! Yeah. Yeah, he, it, it, if you read his writing, he seems rather bummed out that his whole session thing has been hijacked by, hey, let's make another variant of IPA, particularly because he's seeing alcohol creep uh, in the whole definition. He kind of holds to the idea that, uh, you yeah, know, the Brits hold to the idea that session beer should be under 4%. He sort of takes a middle ground and says uh, session beer should be under 4.5, and a lot of American craft brewers are like, well, 5% is still a session beer, which he adamantly disagrees with. So, I don't know, Lou's focus was mostly on pro brewers because that's that's his thing, but I think as home brewers, we can do this as well. Uh, Session beers are super, super quick to, to make. I generally make them in under 10 days. So you guys have plenty of time to take a moment, relax, get our collective wits about us, and find some really great sessionable beers to brew. And the reason why I think it's a good thing to do, particularly in April, as the weather starts to warm up, summer starts to appear around the corner, people are going to start having parties, let's get our session game on and get some flavorful beers out there that people can enjoy while we're uh, all hanging around. You know, I think I'm going to use this as... uh an incentive to get back to developing my American mild recipe. Uh, I've made uh, several attempts so far that really weren't what I was going for, and so I think it's maybe time to start uh, experimenting a little bit again. Sounds good to me. Yeah, well, who knows? You may be the uh, beneficiary of some of these experiments. So Sweet. So about time to head to the lab now, man, finish up our beers and get going. Yeah, I think uh, I think I can pound this sessionable beer, and we can get talking about some of the first word. I may hops. have to uh, bring the rest of this uh, old stock ale with me. So, we'll be right back from Casa Verde to talk about the science part. Beep. 
Welcome back to the labs here at Casa Verde Estates in Black Tie, Oregon. Uh, we're here to talk about our next experiment. We're going to kick things off uh, a little bit. A little bit of notes first before I kick it over to Denny to talk about the reasons for this experiment and the history behind it. So we had some feedback on uh, the experiment that we did before, both from our Igors and from other uh, people involved around the homebrew science community. And we just want to put a note out there to all the people who are doing experimenters, because we know that people are off there doing uh, tasting panels now for the next experiment. But while you're doing these tastings, uh, please make sure that you are not telling people anything about the experiment. And that includes the fact that you are an Igor for experimentalbrew.com, because there are people out there who are listening to the podcast. And if they're listening to the podcast and you are then presenting an experiment to them from uh, experimentalbrew.com, then the worry would be that there are some assumptions that could be made. Now, we have some things in the work where we may try and figure out a way to test this or to see whether or not it matters. But also, really, here's why we do this sort of format that we do. Because in pure, according to Hoyle science, we wouldn't tell the audience anything about the experiments before the tastings are done. But from a show and educational aspect, we feel like it's important that we explain experiments before we ever get to a point of tasting them and having people uh, out there doing it. And the reason for that is we want to get people thinking scientifically, but we also want to have uh, a reason for people to be intrigued and actually get involved in the experiments as well. So it's a lot easier to get involved in the experiments well before the tastings ever start. So that's why we tell you guys what the experiment is ahead of time. But big point, just when you're doing the tastings themselves, Try and uh, try and avoid any mention of the fact that this is something coming from experimental brew and then let the tasters do it. And then afterwards you can talk about it and people can go, Oh yeah, I heard about that. And that was, that sounded really great. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it's not, it's not perfect, but for now, I think that's what we're going to do until we decide on a better system. <laughs> that's right. We're all learning. Right? This. Yeah. We're all learning this as we go. Uh, so again, just be sure when you have people over for a tasting, if they ask you, if this is an, experiment from uh, the podcast you just kind of like look at them and shrug you know it's like don't say anything don't give nothing away so the next experiment we've got coming up is a redo of one i did oh geez probably close to 15 years ago when uh, first word hopping was becoming all the rage i wanted to figure out uh, what kind of bitterness you get from a first word hop edition and how that compares to uh, a 60 minute hop edition. Well, let's, let's start, uh, let's start by explaining, you know, the technique has now been out there in the homebrew world for a good long period of time. But for people out there who don't know what first word hopping is, first word hopping is uh, putting your hops into the kettle uh, before you start running off the wort from your mash and letting them steep in that wort as it comes up to a boil. That is opposed to waiting until the wort comes to a boil and making a hop addition then. Uh, a lot of people substitute first wort hopping for a 60-minute addition. My own perception was that those two things are really not the same. I like to do both. But the purpose of the experiment that I did and the, the method was this. Um, 
I took a 10-gallon batch of wort and split it into two kettles, five gallons each. In one of those kettles, uh, I added an ounce of Cascade hops as the wort was going in. Uh, the other kettle, uh, I waited until the wort came to a boil, added an ounce of Cascade hops to that, the same hops, um, and so you know, and then let them go through the whole boil process, uh, chill them down, and compare it. Those were the only hop additions that either beer got. Uh, I was trying to, like I said, compare the amount and quality of bittering you get from a 60-minute edition only to what you get from a first-word hop edition only. I didn't want anything else getting in the way of that. Um, beers were packaged. Uh, I sent some down to California for a tasting panel that uh, Jamil had put together down there. Uh, and I put together my own tasting panel up here in Eugene. Uh, and quite frankly, the results kind of turned out inconclusive. Some people uh, preferred the 60-minute beer. Some people preferred the first word hop beer. Some people found the 60-minute beer to be more bitter. Other people found the first word hop beer to be more bitter. I sent uh, samples of the beer off to two different labs and came back uh, with a difference of about... 10% more IBUs in the first word hop beer, uh, something like uh, 28 IBUs for the 60-minute beer compared to 31 for the first word hop beer. Uh, so you can see neither beer was extremely bitter. Um, my own perception was that the first word hop beer, even though it measured more IBUs, tasted like it had fewer, but I could not repeatedly pick that beer out. So like I said, the results were real inconclusive. So we want to try this again with a, uh, a broader pool of brewers and tasters and see if we can get any uh, results that are maybe just a bit more definitive and uh, see where that leads us. Well, and I think it's called, you know, we have 10 more years of experience, both as brewers and now as beer scientists types. And, I think the audience is now actually more sophisticated as well, particularly with all the hop obsession that's going on. Yeah, so. I think I think it's going to be real, real interesting. Um, we may we may go with just a, a little bit more hops this time than just an ounce, just to uh, up the bittering level just a bit. Uh, kind of depends on on the hops we get, which are being uh, supplied by Nico Brew, and I want to just say right now, uh, Nico, thanks a bunch, man, for uh, supplying the hops for this experiment. We all really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I have to really agree with you there, uh, and I'll be really happy just as long as the hops themselves don't come out from underneath Nico's kilt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't you run down the experiment, Drew? All right. So here's the, the question at hand is, how does the bittering from first word hop compare to the bittering from a single 60-minute edition? Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not going to uh, do anything about the aroma, basically, or anything like the other purported benefits of, of first word hopping. We're strictly looking at the bitterness here. And the hypothesis is that there will be a qualitative, noticeable difference between the first word hop and the standard beer. So in other words, we think the, the tasters will be able to reliably pick out the first word hop beer from the, uh, the regular 60-minute edition beer. Uh, 
brewers are only going to need one session to do this because we're still keep, trying to keep things simple. But they are going to be able to, uh, they are going to need to be able to split the wort evenly. Because what we're going to do is have people brew the Magnum Blonde recipe, the same one that we did in our first experiment, uh, except for now instead of using Magnum, because Magnum's a relatively neutral hop that's going to be hard to kind of get a hold of uh, when you're tasting, we're going to have them substitute in the appropriate amount of Cascade. So we're going to have you brew enough Magnum Blonde uh, to evenly split wort into two same size kettles. And we're going to want you to make sure that you have the wort at the same volume and the same gravity levels. So the way this is going to work Two kettles, you've mashed. Uh, in your two kettles, in one kettle, you will add your hops uh, for the first word, uh, hop addition. In the other kettle, you leave it clean. So now you're going to steep the hops in that kettle while you sparge. Evenly, make sure to evenly split the sparge runoff between the two kettles. Uh, if you want to be really uh, fanatical about it, make a split hose so that both kettles get wort at the same time. But otherwise, do your best. Make sure that you're getting an even runoff uh, between the two kettles. Bring both kettles to the boil, and when they're at the boil, to the one kettle that did not have the first word addition, add your 60-minute bittering charge. Once it comes to a boil, that's it. Boil both those kettles for 60 minutes, nothing else added to them. Now, usual thing here, pitch, ferment both uh, batches in the same space, under the same conditions. Uh, hopefully you're using the same sort of fermenter vessel. After, after the fermentation subsides, make sure you know the length of the fermentation and what your final gravities were. Package the two beers in the exact same fashion, so that either means into bottles primed with sugar or into kegs and force carbonate to the exact same levels. Make sure you tell us what packaging methodology you used. And then perform your standard triangle test in order to evaluate whether or not your tasters can tell a difference. And report back to us successful and unsuccessful numbers. And most interestingly, I think also uh, give us back the... Uh, qualitative notes from our tasters. So particularly those from uh, those who successfully identified the difference and those who didn't, they have different value. Uh, as you can tell, if you look at that first experiment that we did with the 1056 and the white labs 001, we were able to glean some really interesting information about 1056 versus 001 from the taster notes. And then finally, also, Igor's tell us what you think. And remember, take pictures and have some fun with us. Uh, you saw what the write-ups look like, and the more interesting media that we can have, the better. Yeah, we, we love pictures. We'll put them on the website. We'll give you credit. Uh, your tasters will get their, uh, their pics up there, unless they're all wearing masks and don't want to be identified or something. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also the possibility that uh, this experiment may be used elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm hopefully I'll be able to publish uh, the results of this experiment uh, in, in a magazine. And the other thing that I'm working on, no guarantees, but uh, I'm I'm working on getting a lab lined up to analyze the beers again. So if any of you guys who brew these want to uh, send them off to the lab, hopefully we'll be able to get some IBU analysis done once again. So, you know. Lots, lots of ifs, I admit it. We'll just kind of have to see what happens. Indeed. Okay, man. Well, uh, I guess it's uh, about time to uh, wrap things up here and uh, go see Roger again, huh? Yeah, I know. Yeah. And uh, quick, everybody strap on those helmets. (laughs) Yeah, really. We'll be back in just a minute with part two of our interview with Roger Davis of Faction Brewing.
So uh, thanks to our sponsor, Craftmeister, uh, Drew and I got a chance to visit the San Francisco Bay Area and to visit some breweries and talk to some of the brewers down there. One of them was Roger Davis of Faction Brewing. You heard the first part of that uh, wide-ranging interview uh, on the last episode, and we're going to play the second part today. Well, and just to note it out there, this episode actually marks the last of our San Francisco audio content. Uh, We are sad to leave the Bay Area, but we do have uh, more content coming up in the future from around the country. And we hope that you guys uh, learned some stuff from uh, this whole San Francisco trip. Uh, So now, before we get started, we did hear from a few folks that there was some confusion about uh, Roger's dry hopping technique. Well, and I, I will state... For the record, uh, I'm surprised that that was the only thing there was confusion about. (laughs) But uh, so what we've done for this week is we've actually rolled back the audio a little bit and we're presenting the dry hopping segment again. So that's about mm, three, four minutes that are being repeated from last week's episode. Sorry to live with it, but it's another chance for you to attempt to translate uh, Roger Davis speak into practical brewing advice. Now, my takeaway on what I heard during the interview segment. And frankly, I had to go re-listen because that was a very long day, a very enjoyable day. But uh, from what I get from listening to Roger again is Faction's methodology of dry hopping is very simple. They do one big charge of hops in the primary fermenter just as fermentation is subsiding. They don't do anything with uh, multi-day, multi-dry hop uh, regimens. It's basically one giant charge into the fermenter and let it rip. And that's how he gets his super hoppy character in his beers. So, again, we're going to give you uh, the first little bit of that in the next segment. So feel free to listen. If I get this wrong, let me know. And in the meanwhile, we're going to reach out to Roger just to clarify and make sure that we have that absolutely right. Also, our apologies. It looks like we missed a few colorful utterances in the last episode. I like that phrase, colorful Uh, utterances. Well, it sure as hell sounds a lot better than unmitigated swearing. Yeah, right. So uh, the good news is uh, we've flogged the audio monkey uh, for this particular episode. Audio monkey? I think that's a rather colorful term (laughs) for you. Yeah, right. So we flogged the audio monkey this time through, and we think we've caught them all. So you should be kids safe in this particular segment. Uh, If not, mia koopa, mia koopa, mia maxima koopa. That's right. So... uh, Grab yourself a beer so you can get into the same headspace that we all were, and uh, hope you enjoy this second half of uh, Roger Davis from Faction Brewing. What we'll do is like we'll we'll hop out of it in the in the in the hot side, not I said sorry, not do it on the hot side, and then um, just put it on the cold side. Cold side meaning post fermentation. Yeah. Well, not just, post, not post. But post at fermentation chill. at fermentation time. Right. So you're you're post chill. Fermentation's happening. You're injecting more hop hop flavor in there. So, so not you, flavor or aroma. aroma. You you add hop. So you have to get the you ha- you seriously have to get the um, the flavor from the uh, from the kettle. Okay. And then you you add hops during the fermentation. Yeah. Wow, cool! I've never. No, heard. not during. Okay. After. So and okay. Now, now, how do you feel? Like I know, like Vinny and Matt and, and these other guys have talked about, like multi-day, like short stint hop, dry hop regimens where you know X Y Z amount of time on the hops at 
67 degrees and then switch out those hops or add more. Do you do, you do any of these kind of complicated no. dry hop schedules? No. So you're just like massive charge all at once and go with it? Well, I was going to say, one of the things I've been impressed by is like, you know, downstairs in the bar and other times I've seen faction running around in places. Like, a lot of breweries will always kind of come up with like some sort of unique profile on a beer like, oh, this is our blanky blanky beer. And like, then you go downstairs and you're looking, you've got your DEFCON one through five and you've got your other series, your hop twos and, mm. and, and, or your two ops, sorry, uh, your two ops, but you, you've got a whole focus. It seems like on ingredient exploration beers where you're like, no, no, like, you know, these are, it almost seems like you're going, Hey, look, these are exploratory things that we're making. Is that fair to say? Or. The two hop is, uh, and pretty much everything else. The two hop is basically what we're doing with the two hop series. It's called the two hop pale, which what you're talking about uh, basically is we're taking the single hop mentality, mm-hmm. but bringing in another hop, a little extra layer. Yeah, but then we're kind of rolling it over. So every time that you come in here, you'll have a two-hop uh, pale ale with four different hops, or three different hops, I should say. Well, I was going to say, because I think what, right now you have Delta and Comet. Yeah, and, and the Delta's out on its way out. And, and, then, and then you have got like a couple others with the Delta as the primary. And yeah, then, so there's always going to be a common denominator. So in a lot of ways, it seems like what you're really giving your audience is a chance to explore those different flavors, exactly. but in a more interesting Decide way. Decide yourself if you can decipher what the hell's going on. Because I, I started this thing at uh, Triple Rock when I started there, and it was, it was to be honest with you, it was, I'm not going to say it, but it was actually selfish. Three, I wanted to know because it was single hops. Single hop uh, series, and we called it the She Single Hop Experience. Experience. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, and uh, basically it was just like, well, I mean, making I making one beer after the next with certain hops. You know, we uh, we ran through Simcoe, we ran through uh, Citra, and this is a funny little story. Uh, it was right before beer week and I didn't even realize what, what I was doing, but, uh, this citra hop was finally available to me and this was in like 2009. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I was hanging out and I was getting ready to leave and all of a sudden, uh, Mitch, Mitch from, uh, uh, Stone. Stone. And then Brindlestein showed up. And then I was just like, oh, f- I gotta hang out. This is during beer week. And I was like, tired. I was, I was burnt. I was like, fuck, what the f- am I doing? Both of those guys showed up. Uh, Matt and Mitch, what do you do? Yeah, no, you go with them. No, it's like, both of them are like, yeah, let's check out the brewery. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, let's go check out the brewery. And uh, I had just dry hopped it the day before. 
Uh, and this was 2009. And I was like, hey, does anyone want to try a uh, Citra dry hopped uh, single hop uh, pale? And it's a brand new thing. No, Mitch and uh, Matt are obviously on the front lines of what? all this stuff. But they basically were like, yeah. So poured them a little bit and they're like, oh my God. And we were doing, at the time, a pound per barrel. That's unheard of now. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like a, that's a pilsner here on the West Coast. Uh, what beer do you find yourself longing to drink? Cantillon. Cantillon? Actually, I take that back. Trey Fontaine. Trey Fontaine. <sighs> so, now, here you are. You're in the middle of, you know, like, obviously you have a very hop influenced in the brewery. And then your answer is on uh, Dre Fontaine. So, I love I love sours. So is there a future for faction sours coming, or is that yeah? Like- we already, we released our first one for anniversary on September twenty fifth. I say I totally missed it. And I've been out of the loop. Oh, sucks to be you. I know. Well, hey, look if you, if if you can get <laughs> to actually the the sour suck too, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I was gonna say, if you can get to Dre Fontaine levels, I'll I'll be here more often. We will never get to that level, and if <laughs> we ever could, then you could retire. No, then I would shoot myself because we'll never. Because you're there. done. Yeah, All right. I, I've lived my life. So uh, let's talk about a couple of things that we saw while we were uh, roaming around here. Now, obviously, we're in this big, strange military ex warehouse, and we talked a little bit earlier about helicopters being trucked in and out of here and how, how you're fascinated by some of the history. But really, when we showed up here, you're like, your first response was, uh, sorry, I've got, to, I've got to finish dealing with the kegs. And we watched you for like 30 minutes racing around the floor of the brewery with a forklift in such a way it seemed like really your whole excuse or the whole opening of a brewery was so you could have an excuse to drive a forklift around a big floor. Is that... An accurate assessment? Sure. To be honest with you, that's not my happy place. My happy place is like, you know, working in the brew house, making beer. But that's the side of the business that needs to be done. And and it has to be done because no one else is going to do it unless you hire someone. And, and we, we've hired people, and we have a team that's f***ing insanely f***ing cool. And at the end of the day, they go home. And you're still here? No. no. It has nothing to do with that. Sometimes they have to go home early. And mm-hmm. most of the time they get it done before, you know, I walk out of my f***ing stupid little office with my f***ing shit-ridden shorts... Now, but the no, bottom line is, you know, I, I, I'm just getting the beer back where I care about it. And everyone on our f***ing damn team cares about it. It goes in the cold box. Hmm? But it well, couldn't happen today because there's shit that didn't, yeah. it well, didn't no, jive. Well, and I wasn't implying that your team was lazy or anything else. It was just like... Like yeah, watching. you just did. I did not in no such way. Okay. Because what I was trying to say was, like, while you're sitting there driving the, the forklift, 
you know, no matter where your your where the actual the actuality of your brain space was, but the appearance of it was, you just looked at it and you're like you were just out there. You were like, I'm driving this forklift and I'm enjoying. I'm in my happy driving. zone because basically I'm moving product that yeah. means a lot to me. Yeah. Anyways. Now while we were downstairs, uh, you came over, you know, with a fresh hop sample and dropped a little bit into all of our hands and got us to smash them together our hands and rub them together and smell them and they smelled like pears. So, now to you. Well, to me. But but now, to the homebrewing audience that's going to listen to this, they're going to hear, new hop? What? What is this hop? Where can I find it? So, can you give us a little bit of the details on what the hop was and what where they may be able to find it or what to look for and what you get out of that hop? It's a... Uh... It's a hop that is grown in Idaho, which is uh, really nice. Uh, apparently, you get pear. I got pear. I get I get stinky pot. Well, no, there's pear and pot. Okay, so once you get past the stinky pot, it becomes pear. At least for me, I live in L.A., not San Francisco, so you guys may think pot first. We're not going to hold that against you. But I mean, when I when I smelled it, the very first thing I smelled was pear, and then there was a big bed of pot behind it. That may just be L.A. healthful living versus San Francisco decadence. No, it's called pot. It's called Humboldt. But uh, the bottom line is, uh, I wish we had some right now. Uh, and what Humboldt or pot or the pear uh, the pear hop? <laughs> Wow, you're just going with this pear thing. <laughs> it's a it's a great hop. I, it's not going to be available for a couple years, I would imagine, for uh, home brewers, unless you come by faction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't don't come by here. <laughs> Roger doesn't want your business. Not at least if you're not looking for just a hop. Yeah, I, I'm here for uh, the '07. Okay, here's your pellet. <laughs> well, it's a, it, no, but it's a great hop, and uh, I mean, uh, basically, we'll have a beer out. We we did one beer uh, uh, last year with this hop, and it it's it's fucking pretty good. Well, and so the Idaho hop distributor that you get, or hop brewer that you get from, what, it, do, it, what do they call it right now? What are they called? What, what do they call the variety? Uh, right now, last year it was called 007. Now they're calling it uh, Idaho 7. Right. So, in other words, uh, homebrewers, uh, keep an eye out for something that may or may not be referencing 007 from Idaho if you want a really great hop that smells a lot like uh, Juicy Pears and Humboldt Gold. Is that fair? I was waiting for the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sadly, I'm the announcer, so... Oh. Uh, No, it's a great hop. All right. So, uh, I also do, uh, like, I want to talk uh, before Denny gets back here. uh, So, you're in this great big old ex-military warehouse with all this room. Hangar. Yeah, hangar. Sorry, yeah. Uh, not a warehouse, hangar. Actual storage area we're for actually, aircraft. We're actually sitting where the commander-in-chief 
kept an eye on his aircraft. Pretty intense when you look at it that way. Well, I know. I like uh, maybe Jonathan's view is better than ours. Well, it's just, uh, Jonathan's probably sitting exactly where the commander sat to go, like, watch. Like, oh. No, he probably sat back there so he can see. Yeah. But now, so you've got this big, uh, big, uh, big hangar area. And you got all this room, and you get you got your twenty barrel brewery, but and you got your sink where you're putting your fermenters for now. As you're as you're planning on hopefully growing, as that would happen, yeah. You know, like how, how how far do you think you can take this one location with what you got? I think we would be happy with what we what we have right now. So like earlier we were talking like, no, I, I think uh, as faction. Faction themselves, aka the brewery, would um, we'd be happy with what we can produce with what we have now, which would be close to twelve thousand barrels. Uh, And there's no reason to go above that. Unless you're going, in my opinion, unless you're going like nationwide footprint. Yeah, there's no. Well, we we've sent beer over to Europe, and we've sent beer to Oregon, Washington, blah blah blah. But it's only it's only small amounts, and at the end of the day, there's no reason to go higher than what we're. But if we ever did, we would push the the pad a little bit further, and that would go for a bottling line mm-hmm. more than anything else. There you go. But. Uh, well, but I was going to say, like, earlier, like, when we were out on the, the floor, one of the things that I thought was fascinating was you talked about, like, you had, like, for a while you had this little bit of push-pull about uh, money coming in versus money going out and, like, how you ma- how you had to kind of wrestle, like, producing beer versus, you know, paying for the malt and everything else. And that seemed like that was an odd point in your growth. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's difficult to to produce beer because it's not a money maker. No, there's no one in this. Well, well, there's a lot of people in this world that realize that. Yeah, there's no money to be made in making beer. Well, I was gonna say the classic. I mean, the classic joke is, how do you make a million dollars in brewing? Start with two million dollars and open a brewery. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, it, and but, that joke is no longer a joke. Yeah. You know, it's it's becoming substance. But you know, when you don't have that to start with, what yeah. do you do? You know, you you stress out a lot. I didn't have any gray hair before I started this fucking brewery. Actually, I, I, I was going to say I'm going to call you on that lie. Get the the nice middle finger salute there from uh, Roger. Yeah, that was a middle finger. Salute. So, but, but it, uh, you know, Claudia and I, uh, you know, persevered because this is what we want to do. Cool. And, yeah, if anyone walked up to us, like, in two days and said, hey, I'll give you a billion dollars for this, or 80, 80 million, or 70 million, or 5 million, or not 5 mil. Sorry. Take that back. No 5 Five hundred million, seven hundred million. We'd sell quicker and say hi because you know what? It doesn't matter. Go get another one. But I have one hundred and twenty dollars in my pocket. Will that help me buy the brewery or? Fuck off. All right. 
So when Denny and I went to go write experimental homebrew, I was responsible for a lot of the wacky recipes because that's who I am. And one of the ones I introduced him to was the idea, uh, and I said, we're putting this one in the book. And it was a white stout. And, and I he, screamed and I screamed and said, no, you can't have a white stout. Now, until recently, I've never admitted to Denny that... Seriously, the, we're going to talk about this? Yes, we are. Because we're going to have to. I've never admitted to Denny that the entire reason why I have a white stout in my repertoire is due to you. And you're an anomaly. <laughs> so, it's, not, it's not my anomaly. It's not your anomaly? <laughs> no, that's... That's what we're calling it at Faction. Right. Continue on with the question. Well, so now, where did the White Stout come from then? Steve. Steve at uh, uh, Highwater. Steve Altamari. Good friend. Love him to death. He and I were sitting at the at festival one day, and uh, he basically said, Hey, Let's do a collaboration. And I was at Triple Rock at the time. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. Well, I don't know what this collaboration thing is, but all right, let's do it. And uh, he said, or collaborate. And I was like, actually, he said it. Steve, Steve Altamari is the brains behind this whole thing. I give him total credit. And blame. And he said, how do we do this? And he looked at me and he was like, let's do a white stout. And I was like, I don't know what the f*** that means. That's the same reaction I had. And fast forward to uh, a month and a half later when uh, Julian, who was a homebrewer at the time. but Julian Trigo, who's now with Beachwood. Julian is a... Julian's awesome. And uh, so Julian calls me up. He's like, hey, let's do a... Uh, uh, Gabe wants to do something for um, the fourth anniversary of uh, uh, Beachwood, Seal Beach. This is before Long Beach opened. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, we were thinking like a, like a white stout. And I was like... Dude, I was just thinking about this for like the last two weeks, three weeks. You know, it's like, how do you make a stout and not stout. not be a stout? And how do you just do that mind play on people? And uh, they wanted to do an imperial. Um, so all these ideas started coming up. And unfortunately, we never brought Steve into the equation. Uh, Steve's idea was essentially what made it, made this this beer. He was the impetus, or the yeah. the, the seed. Yeah, he he was like, let's make a white stout, and I was like, I don't know, what fucking that means, man. So, uh, so to Steve, he's a dad. Oh. <laughs> where's the Steve? No, Altamari uh, just. Uh, and I, I have to give him mad respect, man. So Gabe and uh, Julian came up and brewed a beer at Triple Rock for the fourth anniversary. And we did an Imperial. And it came out too dark. 
came out too dark. And by dark, I mean it like came out like... Orangey? Yeah, it was a little bit orangey, a little bit less than orangey, if you will. So, what, like too much coffee and chocolate, or...? No, that was just the color of the malt. Oh. Uh, it was, it was oh, because of the extra color from the, the extra pale. Like, just the, just the sheer amount of malt. Sheer amount of malt. We basically uh, uh, brewed that beer, and uh, what we're doing with the anomaly here is uh, just basic two row and whatever you can possibly do to get that uh, crystal malt taste that a stout would have and then moving forward to a uh, to a to a little bit of mouthfeel uh, what we're doing is uh, uh, the lactose sugar mm-hmm. and then uh, just lightly hopping it I mean, going from there with just huh? take what you would take I mean honestly to, to to figure out like all the flavors that you get from a stout take that and use it in your mind to figure out how you can get it from not using that well I, the I, dark malts well and I think this is how I finally sold Denny on the idea was I pitched it to him as it, it, it's the same thing as like when you see a, a modern chef do food deconstruction, right? How do, I, how do I give you the same sensations in a different presentation? Yeah. And so, you know, we think stout, we think coffee, chocolate, and a couple other things coming from those roasted malts. Deconstructed. So, yeah. So deconstructed and then reconstruct in a different configuration. So instead of going for the dark things that are giving you those same flavors, go for a paler version that give you the same flavors. So you get cold brew coffee, you get, you know, cacao yeah. nibs, you get that sort of stuff. To give you the sensations, but without giving you the color. Exactly. Yeah. So. And that's what we we were doing for a long time. And the bottom line is, like, someone asked, someone someone asked me uh, uh, recently to do uh, a collaboration, and I was just like, yeah, that's cool. We can do that. But what's a collaboration? You know, you sit around with your dick in your hand and. Can jerk off on the kettle and who can come up with the most interesting challenging idea and and that's what I came back with uh, was like why don't we just make two beers or one beer and deconstruct it and de- deconstruct it in the fact that hey this is a brown ale and this is a pale ale or something like that but a, 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 a darkly and together they become a style very nice, playing with, playing with the same idea. So it, it's, it, as, as no, it's it's different because well, no, but what you were saying, because you were saying, like, we just deconstructed the stout. And into a single vessel. Into a, no, not a single vessel, so much as, a, as something that, like, people can actually, like, accept. Because basically that's why I did that is, like, People would be like, I don't like stouts. They're too dark. Well, here's all the flavors you're missing. But by not putting this in front of them, aka the dark beer that I'm putting in front of Drew, now this is what you have, but you're missing it. This is what you're missing. Right. 
This is, yeah, this is why you should go but that was, further. That was the chocolate. But let's let's figure out deconstructing beers in two breweries, putting them together. Oh yeah, no, that, I mean that's a hard calculation run. Trying to figure out how that's going to work. So, two breweries make a beer. Well, I know, but it's not the count. The hard part's not two breweries making a beer. The hard part is how to get each of those products to come together to make it's harder than like, like having two brewers go into or yeah. two brewers go into a brewery well, one being the one that works there and the other one saying like hey let's do it this way well, cool, you, let's you, do it this way because well, you got to figure out the guy who's always going to the, the guy who operates in that brewery from today is always going to have a greater influence on the beer than the person who's just visiting kind of tossing you kidding me random I ideas a, I did a, a collaboration with the Chocolate Green Flash uh, many years ago. And he's like, no, we should recirc this. This is the Triple Rock. And I was like, dude, we don't recirc. He's like, well, why don't we just hook up a hose here and do this? Do this and do that and do these. I was like, because there's a pain in the ass, man. <laughs> what the f*** is wrong with you? And he's like, let's do it. I'm like, go ahead. Do it. I give you permission to run forth in my brewery. All right. And so, we learned, we, uh, Chuck and I both learned that day that uh, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> no, it was fine. It was fine. You, you both learned that the Triple Rock Brewery is not exactly built for recirculation. Yes. I, I, I like it. All right. And, so, and the funniest thing is, like, Colby from Ballast Point is just sitting back there, just like taking pictures. Like, fuck this. I don't give a shit. And he was, and he's Ballast Point. Hey, look, some, uh, sometimes the greatest skill in life is knowing when to step back and go, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> exactly what I said at one point. I was just like, you going to research this shit? All right. I'll be at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one last question. Uh, so obviously everybody, when people talk to you about stuff that ends up on podcasts and people hear you it's all about beer 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 so what i want what i want to give you an opportunity to, to express is so what non-beery thing do you find that you're fascinated by or obsessed by the business the business of beer business of uh faction i think that still qualifies as are you all Are, here all the time? Uh, no, the life revolves around this. Mm -hmm. And it's, you just woke my eyes up. And the fact that it's like, fucking Claudia and I don't sit around and talk about like, hey, in a rocking chair, anything. If we're in a rocking chair and we're like fucking talking about this, it's like, yeah, so sales are down or up or blah blah blah. You know, it's and all that's the stressor. You know, I mean, you're you're talking to someone that's two years into this. Well, I was gonna say, I mean, you're a small business owner, so it makes sense that. Well, that we're two years into like having this brewery be what it is, and we, I, I honestly, I don't think, and or shit, this brewery, unless it's this brewery. Hey, that's a I mean, that is a perfectly wonderfully valid response because mm -hmm. 
I, it does encapsulate. I, I tried to get Claudia out of here every once in a while so we can have like a, a, a wife and husband life. But, I mean, we went to Florida two weeks ago. Had a great time on the beach in St. Pete's. Then we went and poured beer for a festival. You know, it was just no, like... No, no, you didn't go pour beer for a festival. You went and poured beer for uh, the festival. Uh, uh, the, sorry, my bad. <laughs> um, uh, but, for, for those who don't understand the diction, uh, the Shelton brothers for their uh, what the past three, four years have run a sort of high-end beer festival that they call the festival. The yeah. festival. And it is actually a pretty great time. I mean, it's a great, it's a great little festival. It was great in LA, but at the end of the day, it was just like, that was a lot of work. Yeah, it's a festival. That's, it, I mean, no matter what anybody, if you've never poured at a festival, you don't realize just like, oh God, that's a long damn day of doing. No, I've done that. Well, you've done that, but uh, people who, have listened, who are listening may not have ever done that. So it's 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 not normal. It's not normal. I'm gonna I'm gonna start walking talking like I'm Australian. Hey, <laughs> well, so on the Australian note of everything, everybody who's been listening, no matter where you are, if you get a chance, you absolutely have to go find some of Roger's beer because I mean, Roger's been doing this for for a little while, so he may actually have a little bit of a clue about what 1990 he's doing. bitches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He, and his soundtrack here is completely of the time of, of his brewing experience. <laughs> you. I don't listen to any 90s music. <laughs> but no. 90s seriously. suck. Seriously. I'm out. Come, come here. F*** this bull****. Come here out to the picturesque uh, military room of, of Alameda Island. And come enjoy a Rogers Beat Bears. it, bitch. Get out. Did you pay rent? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, That's Roger Davis, Alameda, he's a pain in the ass, but Good night, New York. Thank you, everybody. All right, and there you go. There's our final segment on uh, Roger Davis from Faction Brewing. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got to, to appreciate the genesis of the white stout that makes Denny's heart flutter every time and make him reach for the nitro pills. Uh, and really, we hope that you gained a lot of useful information in talking to Roger, but we will stress again, if you find yourself anywhere near Alameda, anywhere in the Bay Area, really try and make uh, make an effort to get out to the Alameda Island, drive to the way weird end of the island where you think, I don't know if there's any more island, and go to Faction Brewing Company in their hangar, enjoy the billion-dollar view of the bay, and enjoy some really incredible beer. Yeah, really. He makes some really, really great stuff. So, um, all right. Time for another little break here. And when we come back, it'll be time for Ask Denny and Drew. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. Okay, it's time for Ask Denny and Drew, the part of the show where we try and see if uh, we're smart enough to come up with answers that you'll fall for, for your brewing questions. Uh, Drew, you got the first one today. Hit it, buddy. 
Well, hold on real quick before we get there. I wanna I wanna announce something special to everybody. So this is episode seven of Experimental Brewing. What we are going to do is we have a lot of questions from listeners. And in a sort of a, a way to try and catch up, we are going to take episode 10, so two episodes from now, and we are going to turn episode 10 into an all Q&A show. So what that means is if you have questions, make sure you get them into us so that we can address them or address as many of them as we can in our Q&A show. And who knows, if we have a good enough response to it, that may become a regular sort of rotating feature of a show. Yeah, and make sure that you get those questions in soon so we can start thinking up answers that are ridiculous enough you might go for them. Or at the very least, go talk to somebody who might actually know the answer. Jeez, man, that's pretty radical. Do you really want to go that far? Okay, 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 okay. We'll, We'll try and actually give you accurate answers to the questions, too, so... All righty, Drew, you have the first one from my friend, Evil Morty. Yeah, Evil Morty from the Brew Brothers Forum. Uh, And uh, by the way, we we do take questions anywhere that you find Denny or me. We will uh, take your questions and suck them into the show because why not? So Evil Morty from the Brew Brothers Forum, he says, what was the first beer that made you fall in love with this hobby? So for me, uh, the first beer that I can remember falling in love with was the very first one that I did which was a pale ale, which was a Sierra Nevada clone from my homebrew shop, uh, an extract kit with grains. And boy, was I happy when I popped that bottle open and enjoyed the first beer. And I went, oh, I made beer. And it felt so good. Uh, Now, of course, my second batch of beer was a raucous red ale. And that turned into a giant pile of crap that I used to make beans because, uh, well, I got an infection in it because apparently I didn't understand how to clean equipment. (laughs) But I will say the first beer that I was ever like truly sort of chuffed about and was super proud to share with everybody, including people in my homebrew club, was the first all-grain beer that I did. And I learned it uh, at the hands of a guy named Doug King, who you may recall we just talked about a couple episodes ago because we had a competition uh, in memoriam of him. And it was his... Uh, Schutzen Light European Lager uh, with a bunch of different grains. It's actually on the Maltos Falcons website. And I did it with a Kolsche strain because I couldn't lager at the time. And that was like batch, I think, six for me. And that was the one that I was super, super proud of because I kept it in cold. I, I kept it in cold storage in terms of a fridge that I had, let it age. And I was getting ready to bring it to a meeting where he was going to be at and I was going to serve it to him. Because, dude, I wanted to be proud and I wanted to show him this beer that that they helped me make and awesome sauce. And that was the meeting I found out that he had passed away at. Oh, what a drag. Boo. My my experience is similar to Drew's, even a similar style. Uh, For my birthday in uh, 1998, my wife uh, went out to Costco and bought me a kit of uh, equipment and ingredients that came from Pike Brewing up in uh, Seattle one of the oldest brew shops in the nation, although it's not there anymore. Uh, it had what I didn't realize at the time, but now do, was basically a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale clone, uh, steeping grains, liquid extract, cascade hop pellets. I still remember, I mean, the the very first time I opened a bottle of that and heard it go, it's like, darn, I've I've done magic here. And tasted the beer, and it was darn good. And uh, at that point, a, a monster was born, and uh, I never looked back. 
So that's that's my first five hundred batches later. <laughs> yeah, right. That's my first beer story, Morty. Uh, our next question comes from Len Bergonia, who says, "Is there really a difference between crystal and caramel malts?" I'm going to start with my opinion, which is technically yes. In usage, so little that you might not be able to pick it out. Now, for the technical yes part, we're going to go to uh, uh, Dave Kusky, the director of malting operations at Breeze, and uh, some information that uh, we got from him for our book, Experimental Homebrewing. And I'm going to try and just summarize that for you here. Dave says that the difference between caramel and crystal malts involves both terminology and chemistry and production differences. Now, kind of what it comes down to uh, is that European maltsters landed on crystal malt as a description of malts that go through a conversion step where the starches are rapidly converted to sugars, kind of like by mashing the grain within its husk, and the sugars are then crystallized at high temperatures in a roaster. Uh, somewhere in the distant past, uh, it was decided that uh, crystal-style malts uh, produced in the same manner were given the name caramel malt. What it, what it kind of comes down to is generally crystal malts are killed at, at a much higher temperature uh, in order to achieve crystallization. Um, and a roaster is really needed to achieve that kind of temperature. Uh, there are caramel malts that are produced using a kiln, uh, but that's more common for crystal malts. Dave says, after stewing, the malt is heated to the highest temperature possible on the kiln, which is not hot enough to actually crystallize the sugars due to maximum temperature limitations on the kiln. In most cases, 220 to 240 degree temperatures are as high as one can achieve in a kiln. There is some caramelization that occurs at that lower temperature, but the majority of the color and flavor difference is due to the Maillard reaction. So basically what the, it kind of comes down to this in a nutshell, the way I, I understand it, is that the crystal malt is killed at a much higher temperature and those sugars are actually crystallized. Caramel malt is killed at a lower temperature and the flavor comes more from the Maillard reactions than the actual crystallization of the sugars. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Right. And so, in other words, what we're probably looking at here is uh, higher temperatures on the crystal, shorter time for processing. The caramel malts are lower and slower. Right. And I think that if if you try both in your beer, you will find subtle flavor differences. I think you'll find more similarities than differences. But again, you know, this is a fun thing to play around with. If you have a, access to a variety of different crystal and caramel malts, Try uh, try using some that are uh, kiln to the same color um, and compare the flavors to them. See, see what you think for yourself. So hope that helps you, Len. All right. Question number three comes from RPI Scotty, who hangs out over the HA forum. And he says here, uh, can you guys shed some light on ice bath fermentation control for those of us who can't accommodate the extra space and resources for an electronically controlled setup? In particular, what are some good approximations for the delta T of the ice bath to maintain a specific temperature? I've heard 5 degrees Fahrenheit lower than the desired fermentation temperature. And two, what are some general tips for homebrewers to use when ice bath cooling? 
All right, so I'm going to start uh, start this one. I know Denny has some uh, feedback on it as well, because uh, frankly, I still actually use ice baths all the time, uh, mostly when I'm doing Belgian beers nowadays. But I did this for about the first 12 years of my brewing uh, hobby, almost religiously. Uh, so what I do, uh, I have always used frozen two liters as my ice source. So they're renewable and I can just go chuck them in the, in the freezer and keep in mind, I live in LA, which means that, uh, and I live in the Valley of LA, which means that temperatures here during the summer can climb up into the hundreds and 110s, uh, particularly if you're in an uninsulated garage. So what I will always do when I'm doing ice bath is, as big of a container as I can find, so like say a 55-gallon trash can, I will put the fermenter in there and fill it with cold water until we're really just below, you know, whatever the danger point is, aka the neck of the carboy or the uh, top of the keg that I might be in. I will fill that up with cold water and then I will dunk one or two, uh, two liters in there depending upon how hot it is. Stick a floating thermometer in the ice bath or in the water bath and walk away. And then every 12 hours, I will switch out the two liters. And I find that plus wrapping the uh, container, like that 55-gallon trash can, in a blanket. And preferably putting some sort of lid on top of it that I usually make out of like foam core. So there's a little insulation up top. I can keep my beers in a relatively good fermentation shape, like in 68-69 range. Uh, it's not ideal. It's not my perfect place. And the temperature does swing. But you have to remember, you're talking about big masses of water. So it takes a long time for, for temperature fluctuations to really sort of uh, swing through those volumes. Uh, and that has been, to a first order, the best way I have to do it uh, in terms of combination of keeping myself in a reasonable space and not sweating the details of it too much. Uh I usually find that if I'm doing a water bath, uh, I don't have to worry about what the delta T is going to be because that delta T is going to change uh, over time with the activity of the fermentation. I just have a thermometer in the in the water bath, and the water bath should be relatively close to what the fermentation temperature is. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to say something similar. Uh, I I don't know what the delta T is because I've never measured the temperature of the water because I really don't care what the water temperature is. I care what the beer temperature is. Uh, I'm lucky in that uh, temperatures where I live are a little bit more moderate than where Drew lives. I don't have to deal with those super high temperatures very often. Um, so I use uh, I use like a like a, a three bushel. Uh, plastic garden bucket you know for mine uh, i use uh, blue ice packs rather than frozen two liter bottles of water um, the one thing i do have that drew doesn't have to deal with is it uh, oftentimes gets fairly cool up here so uh, you can what i've done is i've stuck a uh, an aquarium heater into the water in the bucket uh, I put that on a timer so that it only comes on during the coldest times of the day, and that's uh, been a very effective method for uh, for heating as well as uh, cooling. You know, with the, the ice packs, uh, it does take some trial and error, not a lot, uh, and you can get pretty close pretty quickly. Uh, I've been brewing for 18 years, only just got a freezer uh, and temperature controller about a year and a half ago. 
So I made a lot of beers with the uh, with the bucket of water, ice packs, or uh, heater method, and uh, believe me, it, it works really well as long as you stay on top of it. Yeah, and I mean the real trick, and I think the the real hard part is making sure that you're vigilant about keeping the water temperature in the right range during that initial ramp up of fermentation. Right. Uh, because that's when all you, all your heat is really being generated and that's when your yeast characteristics are coming out. So I, I tend to do as much as possible to, during that first part to at least actually keep the water temperature down. Lower. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I'm at too. Uh, the, I consider the first 72 hours, the most crucial for temperature control. So, uh, you know, I want to keep it down low, at least for that. If it starts to go up after that, that's great. Uh, I try not to let it go down too much until I know that the fermentation is done. So, so have we covered that one, man? I think so. And who knows? There's, there's more to probably be talked about there, but truthfully, it really does come down to, uh, Lots of ice and keep uh, keep an eye. Yeah, out. and if you guys out there are using that method and you have any tips, please let us know, and we'll pass them along to everybody. Our last question this week comes from Brian Cavins. Brian says, "On a homebrew scale, is mash efficiency a number to chase?" I see many brewers that seem to think efficiency is the key to their brewing, and higher is better, almost like bragging rights. My school of thought has been trying to get a recipe to be consistent and aim for a decent enough efficiency of 70 to 75%. That way I'm not wasting grain. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's probably a pretty smart way to approach it, Brian. Um, efficiency, higher efficiency is not necessarily better. On the other hand, lower efficiency is not necessarily better. I've uh, heard people claim that uh, if your efficiency gets too high, it negatively impacts the uh, quality of your beer. Uh, I think you would have a hard time selling that to people like Sierra Nevada, who uh, on a regular basis get pretty much 100% efficiency out of their mash. Um, but I don't think that efficiency is a number that a home brewer should necessarily chase after once they get into a range that they consider to be okay. Um my efficiency averages right around 83%, but not because I tried to get to 83%. It's because the things that I do during my brewing just made it turn out like that, I guess. Uh, again, since I didn't, I didn't make any effort to try and do that, I'm not exactly sure what to say when people ask me how I get that number. But the key is you do want to have a consistent efficiency so that when you're formulating a recipe or adjusting someone else's recipe to your own system, which is something you should always do, you know what your system efficiency is so you know how to make those adjustments. That's that's what it's all about right there. Yeah, and, you know, and I'll agree. I think consistency is far more important. In fact, I think the only thing that really matters in terms of bragging rights about your beer is the, the number that's attached to the enjoyment factor of your beer. Uh, I think a lot of things that are out there like, you know, chasing efficiencies or chasing lag times and all that. It's uh, oh, trying to think the best way to put uh, this. That isn't gonna be terrible. Uh, no, screw it. I'm going to just say it the way I want to say it. I think chasing, uh, chasing things and bragging about things like efficiency and lag times and all that other sort of stuff is nothing more than a dick measuring contest. There you go. And I'm not interested in that sort of thing. 
So I totally agree with Denny. Consistency is the thing. And the only reason consistency is the thing is because that way you can consistently make beer that you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, I know plenty of brewers, I know plenty of brewers out there who their mash efficiency is not super consistent where they'll get 65% one day and they'll get 75% the next uh, or even higher. And you know what? They still enjoy their beer. So more power to them. Right. Yeah. So if, if, if you can figure out how to be consistent, that's the big thing. Be consistent first. And then if you feel like it's too low, you can take, uh, you know, baby steps to, uh, to increase it. Uh, you know, try crushing finer, uh, try adjusting your pH, uh, st- little things like that will make little bits of differences, but be consistent first. So, okay. Our quick tip of the week this week comes from Jeff Gladish, who uh, posted this on the AHA forum. If you brew long enough and hard enough, you may end up with several beers that may not be perfect. Yeah. Tell me, Jeff, uh, at this point, it's fun to start blending. Some of my best beers were blends of two, sometimes three different beers. You can try blending a bit of sour with a bit of malty with a bit of hoppy, and you may just end up with something better than the original parts. Great, great tip, Jeff. Blending is something that uh, homebrewers don't do often enough and uh, can really open up a lot of interesting flavors and combinations. Uh, So uh, give it a try. It's easy to do. Put some beer in your glass, add another beer, see what you think. And just remember, sorry, Charlie, if you end up with a great beer, you're forever going to be hunting it and trying to make it again. That's right. That's right. Enjoy it while you've got it because you'll never have it again once your glass is empty. So uh, every week we like to talk about something besides beer just to prove that we do have another life. Um, I don't know if that's really true, but we we try to pretend that we do. Uh, Drew has some things to talk about this week that he's into that are not beer. Yeah, so uh, there are times when I think that this might just want to be called uh, Drew's uh, Book Corner. Because <laughs> you and Oprah, man. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, if I can make Oprah money from a book club, uh, dude, totally. All right, so I have actually uh, two books that I want to talk about. Uh, one of them is going to be, if you're a science fiction fan, uh, it's going to be Old Hat. Uh, you have already read it if you're interested in it, but whatever. Uh, the first one is a book called Leviathan Wakes, and it's by James S.A. Corey. And it's the first of uh, the books in a series called The Expanse. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because Sci-Fi Channel has launched a TV series called The Expanse, and it's just about to wrap up its first season as we're recording this. So I just read it. It's a old-fashioned space opera, and it is not a Heinlein-length, like, juvenile-type science fiction story. This thing was 566 pages or thereabouts in the copy that I had. And you know what? It was so damn good, I read it in three days. So... Really great sort of a little bit of dystopian science fiction, a little bit of space opera, a little bit of alien life, a little bit of uh, what I really loved about it was there was a combination not only of like, you know, captains in space with badass ships, but also uh, a a noir story of a detective trying to track down a missing girl. And they both come together in really interesting ways and they actually play off each other and ultimately come together in the, in the resolution of the story. So Really great book. Really enjoyed it. Uh, again, that's Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. Man, that sounds like it's right and, up my alley. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's great. And I think they're up to 
I think these uh, James S. A. Quarry is actually a, a pseudonym for two authors, and I think they are now up to book five in their series. Uh, and it was originally only supposed to be three books, but yeah, I, I think that's called one of those things of like, hey, people are buying this, we're making money, let's keep writing. <laughs> Why stop now? So, and 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 truthfully, it's also a really great universe. There's a lot of there's a lot of possibility in that universe. So you completely buy into the idea of being able to do it and not have it turn into a mess, like say foundation. All right. And then the other book that I want to talk about a little less well-known, but also still on a lot of people's list was a book called the golem and the Jenny uh, by Helene Wecker. And this is really cool. This is a fantasy book, but a fantasy book with a slightly different bent to it, because of course there's no swords, there's no wizardry, there's no, uh, you know, chasing after the evil king and reco- uh, recovering the MacGuffin in order to defeat big bad evil. It is a story about a golem who is created in uh, Poland and is brought to New York in the 1890s by her master and woken up just before he dies on a ship and finds herself alone in 1890s Manhattan by herself. And she's a special golem created by this really powerful rabbi uh, and all about trying to figure out what it means to be human and how to pass in this world. And that in and of itself would actually be kind of cool, except for there's a secondary story about a Jenny who is trapped in an oil flask and is released during the same period of time in Manhattan and his attempts to deal with having to live as a human being while being this sort of creature of magic and might. Uh, and it's just really, really, really nifty. And really great, a uh, great and well-told story that goes all over the place, but uh, really just kind of a great exploration of a world I don't think gets explored very often. And a, a very interesting sort of mixture of uh, Arabian magic and Arabian heritage and this uh, sort of arcane Jewish Kabbalist uh, type stuff with the golem. So pretty cool. Uh, I totally highly recommend that. And that's another one of those books I think that was like, 300, 400 pages, and I finished that in like two days as well. Wow. So, yay, there you go. Sounds cool, the man. Book Nook by Drew. Uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, our question of the week this week is, are you ready for the first word hop experiment? Uh, get involved, try it out, and find out what you think, and let us know. Now that we're coming to the end of the episode, let's just go ahead and do a recap, you know, because, hey, you've had a couple beers while you've been listening to us, and it may not entirely be clear what we've talked about. So, so far this episode, we've managed to talk about the global homebrewing scene. We talked about feedback from our first experiment and why you should or should not care about what it is that we're doing. We talked uh, about the Session Beer Project. We talked about Barrel of Monks and how Denny got everything wrong with what the beers were they tasted. Uh, we talked about our, our charity of choice for this month, uh, actually for this part of the year, which is going to be the Freedom Service Dogs of America. And we talked about our first word hop experiment and how to do this whole experiment. There may be some changes. Pay attention to our website. And then finally, we strapped on our Roger Davis hats, and we went and we talked with Roger one last time. And that's going to be it for our Bay Area. We talked to your questions. Hopefully, we gave you some good answers. Denny gave you a tip about blending, and I gave you a couple of book recommendations to keep you out of trouble for a week. So thanks for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast this time around. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew, or on Facebook. 
uh, maybe Instagram. I don't, I've never been on Instagram, so I wouldn't know, but maybe Drew does. Uh, if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, or you can get in touch with each one of us individually at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. We'll see you again in a couple weeks, and remember until then, to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. We'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. We'll be right back.